Psalm 18. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flared forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of your breath of your nostrils. He sent forth on high, he took me. Uh, he sent from on high, he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanliness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord, and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanliness of my hands in his sight. With the merciful, you have shown yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? Who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me, set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of, our, of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them, and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. 
You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, and those who hated me I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire in the streets. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations, people whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who delivered me from my enemies. Yes, you who exalted me above those who rose against me. You rescued me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to, a, to his king, and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. If you've got a Bible, why don't you open it up to Exodus chapter 10. We're going to continue our study through the book of Exodus, and we're going we're gonna to end tonight the narrative of the plagues of Egypt. Um, and as we discussed last week, the, the, the plague narrative is, is, is one of maybe the top, I don't know, three, five, or eight Bible stories that are highly contested because while the, the, the plagues, the plague narrative and what's happening in Egypt and, and how it fits into the, to the, the macro picture of, of Scripture and uh, what it means for the people of Israel, what it means for their culture, for their lifestyle, for the festivals that they have for generations and generations to come, um, all, all, all of that is at, at, at play. But I think what, the peop- what people really want to know is what is it with the hardening of Pharaoh's heart? That's what people seem to take issue with. And there's, there's one camp that, that says, well, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart's very simple. Uh, we may not like it, but it's easy to understand. God wanted to show his power to the world, and so he intentionally, against Pharaoh's wishes, hardened his heart so that Pharaoh would not relent, so that Pharaoh, in fact, could not relent, and the people of Israel would not be released from slavery, and then to justify his act, so to, to, to punish Pharaoh and the Egyptians, the Lord let out this litany of plagues. And it's almost, it's, the imagery is almost uh, what Ella, no doubt, is going to do when her little sibling is born. Whenever a, an older brother or sister grabs a hold of the fists of their younger sibling and hits them with them, He's like, stop hitting yourself, stop hitting yourself, stop hitting yourself. That in a cosmic way, this is what's happening. It's like, Pharaoh, let my people go. While at the same time, the Lord is making it impossible for Pharaoh to do so. That's one camp. Simple to, to understand. We don't like it, but it's, it's simple. Um, and the other, the other ex- far side of the extreme or the other pendulum swing is, is that Pharaoh was um, a, a free agent and the Lord gave no influence whatsoever, and he had a hard heart, and that makes us feel better because, you know, if Pharaoh had free will and volition and chose to harden his heart, 
um, then God's not the bad guy, and, and that's, that's, that's easier for us to swallow. And what seems to be the case, and you know, whenever you consider this, this subject of God's sovereignty and human volition and how those two things come together, do we have free will or is God absolutely sovereign? And the mystery of scripture is that the answer to that question is, is yes. And you, you see it all over the place. And so we're gonna, we, we considered it last week. Um, we're gonna continue to consider it uh, this evening. And, and while we will address that, I don't wanna, I don't wanna to pretend as if I'm gonna like bring that up and then, and then not address it again. Uh, we, we are gonna address it again, but I also don't, if, if that's like your, if that's the, the, the nerve, if that's really what you're out to, to seek answers for and understand, um, I would say that there's an element of it that we never can understand because his ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Jesus is God and man, truly God, truly man, simultaneously, we don't understand that. God is one, Yahweh is one God, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and yet God is shown to us in scripture as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, making one God. I, I, I don't know how that works, nobody knows how that works. And I mean, for, I think most of us and for throughout Christian history, we're okay with that. We're okay with the mystery of the incarnation. We're okay with the mystery of the Trinity uh, because it's so beyond us. But for some reason, when it comes to God's sovereignty versus human free will, the, the bringing of those two, two things together, whether you're in one camp or the other, you think I can put that in a nice little box with 90 degree corners and it's this big by this wide by this deep and I get it. Um, I don't, I don't think that that's the case. I don't think that we can get it. And so I disagree with both sides. I think that the answer is somewhere more in the middle and I think that it's mysterious. Um, but what I, don't, what I also don't wanna lose as we're considering the text tonight is I don't, wanna, I don't wanna look over how much grace the Lord gives to Moses or to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians throughout the course of these 10 plagues. I mean, with the, the couple that we considered last week, for those of you that weren't here, um, he turns the Nile into blood. That's, and it, man, it's this, fascinating, it's this fascinating conflation of the Lord bringing about a judgment on Pharaoh and on, on, the, on slavery. The Lord is not pro-slavery. So, he's, so he institutes, he brings in divine chaos to squash human chaos. It's similar to what he did in the flood. He brought chaos in to stop human chaos, to stop, to stop slavery. And the, the plagues are all a distortion of creation. There's the creation of flies, the creation of frogs, the creation of locusts, but too much. It's out of order, it's out of ratio. The dar darkness and light are mixed, blood and water are mixed. And the first thing that he does is he turns the Nile into blood. It's literally, no pun intended, it's the lifeblood. The Nile River is the lifeblood of Egypt. It's their source of life. It's how they're able to live out there and the Lord turns it into death. He turns it into blood. But they were able to dig wells on the side of the Nile and still get clean drinking water. He brings in frogs, he brings in boils, he brings in locusts, he brings in all these things that are not lethal, they're horrifyingly annoying and painful. I mean, we, what we considered last week is the swarm of flies, uh, the, the word means dog fly. We would think of it as a horse fly, those flies that actually can bite a little piece of flesh out of you. Horrif horrible, annoying, awful, but not necessarily lethal. Um, and then when the hail comes, the Lord even says, if, if you, think that this is real, if you think the hail's really coming, all you gotta do is go indoors. And the text says that there are still people that refuse to do that, which is 
pretty fascinating. There's always a grace, and we're going to continue to, we're going to see the grace continue um, all the way up until the final judgment comes. Um, so let me just see here, make sure um, I didn't miss anything in those open remarks. So chapter 10, verse 1, the Lord now mentions this hardening. Oh, this is the last thing that I'll say. This is what I was thinking about. It isn't until chapter 9, verse 21, that the Lord, actually, it actually says that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. This is the sixth plague, the plague of boils. Up until that point, the text is very clear that Pharaoh hardened his heart and that his heart remained hard. And you see this in the very beginning of this story. The Lord comes to Moses and he says, go to, go to Pharaoh and ask, tell him to let the Israelites go into the wilderness and, and worship for three days. And if you're reading that with any sense of curiosity, you might ask yourself, why three days? Is that arbitrary? Is it random? Is that connected to some other? Is that a hyperlink to something else? And I think yes, but I think for our purposes tonight, it, it, it shows that the Lord already knew that Pharaoh's heart was hard. And the Lord says as much. He says, Pharaoh, he says in chapter 4, go to Moses, go and tell Pharaoh to let people go, but I know he's not going to let you. He hasn't hardened his heart yet. The Lord just in his sovereignty knows the Lord's not, the Pharaoh's not going to let the people go. Ask him for a three-day vacation. He's not going to give it to you because his heart, his heart is hard. And if, you see, if he's not going to let you go for three days, he's not going to let you go forever. So Pharaoh's already in a place. He's already in a, he's in a position of power. He's considered a god. And what, what is the what is natural human, the natural human response when, when a stronger entity, when true deity comes in to our realm of influence? We're either melted like wax and we bend the knee to the one true God, or we harden like clay and say, no, 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 this is mine, back off. You can have whatever part of the world, you can have Mesopotamia, you can have Canaan, you can have all these places, but Egypt is mine. Hands off my Egypt. That is the, that's what the human heart naturally does. And I think that that's what's happening with Pharaoh is he's already got a hard heart. And when the one true God shows up, remember what he says when Moses first comes to him? Lord says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, I don't recognize Yahweh and I don't need to do what he tells me. There it is. There it is. And so uh, the hardening, while I don't know exactly how that works, God's arithmetic is beyond me. But there's this volitional, there's this giving over. It's what we see in Romans chapter one. There's this refusal to repent and the Lord's eventual just, okay, then con continue on course and see what happens. I sent, the, I sent the blood to the Nile. I sent the frogs. I sent all these plagues. And we're gonna see even tonight that every step of the way, there's, a, there's a, a moment of grace, there's a moment of grace, there's a moment of grace, and Pharaoh, each and every time, squashes the grace, take holds again of his autonomy, and he suffers the consequence. Chapter 10, the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. So, this is the first, so now the Lord is mentioning this to Moses. I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants that I may show these signs of mine among them. That, and that you may tell in the hearing of your sons and daughters how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. So before we get to verse three, there's the language. There's the language that can make us queasy. I've hardened his heart so that I can show him my power. And that's true. That is true. 
the people that rejected Jesus had a hard heart. And there's this, there's this mysterious and yet beautiful reality where they, their hearts were hard, they rejected Jesus, they mutilate him beyond recognition, they put him on a cross, they kill him, and then in the opening chapters of Acts, many of those people that were crying out for his blood got saved by the salvation that he acquired for them because he went to the cross in their place, he died in their place. So they were hard, they cried out for his blood, he died, he rose again, and he offered those same exact people salvation, and many of them got saved. That's, that's wild. But this is the God that we're dealing with. He, he uses human frailty and sin. He doesn't cause sin, but he can, somehow, he can somehow commandeer it, is the word Josh uses, I like that word. He can commandeer it for his purposes. So he, his name is being established. The Egyptians are seeing that there is a God more powerful than Pharaoh. And in fact, that Pharaoh is not a God at all. It's one of the things that we're gonna see that's taking place here. So, he hardened his heart so that my signs may be seen. Verse three, so Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country and they shall cover, this is interesting, so they shall cover the eye of the land. Your translation probably says the face of the land uh, or something of, the, uh, something of that sort. Um, but the word there is eye. They're, you're gonna, they're, I'm gonna cover the eye of the land so that no one can see the land. This is interesting lang language. So many locusts, it's gonna be blinding which is speaking to the hubris. Hubris blinds us. We think that we're our own gods or we lay our allegiance to some false idol and that's blinding to us. And one of the coolest things about the plagues is that the Lord uses the very image of some of Egypt's false gods to become repugnant to them. We talked about this last week. I gotta review this because it's so, it's so fascinating. The, the Pharaoh, Pharaoh was killing Israelite baby boys, as soon as they were born, through the agency of the midwives. He told the midwives, as soon as that kid is born, kill him. So the midwives were his tool for killing the Israelite boys, and then the Nile River becomes blood, which has a, a, whole, a whole bunch of connections to it that I will let go. We talked about it last week. But then the second plague is the plague of frogs. And you might think, well, so what? Frogs, God just chose frogs. He could have chose alligators, he could have chose hippopotamus, he could have chose anything, he chose frog. Well, maybe, but I suspect the Egyptians, the Egyptians worshiped a false goddess named Heket, and Heket was the goddess of midwives. And she was a human figure with a frog head. And so you have the goddess, you have the face of the goddess of midwives, the midwives who were killing Israelite boys. Uh, the, the face of the frog was, was a deity to the, to, to the Egyptians. They worshiped the frog face. And then the frogs are used, that same image, that same face, that animal, that creature is used to become absolutely repugnant to them. Part of what the Lord is doing here is he's showing Pharaoh and he's showing the Egyptians your false idols, your, your blind, because you're worshiping false idols. And I'm actually gonna take the very face of that, of that idolatry and make it stink to you. I'm gonna make it odious in the land. And I wonder how many of us the Lord has done that to. If, if you've held on to something in place of Jesus and he actually revealed his goodness to you by, re, by, by showing you how faulty and ugly that idol actually is. Even good things, you know, even good things we can turn into idols. 
Um, my idol was largely my youth and just being able to do whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted, hop on this plane, hop on that plane, boat, boat train, automobile, I can do whatever I want, go wherever I want. And the, the Lord ended my ability to travel. He, he kept me, medically speaking, he kept me in Portland. He, he turned the very thing that I loved into ash so that I would stop looking to it and I would start looking to him. So that's part of what's happening here. Um, Moses and Aaron go into Pharaoh, verse three. How long will you refuse to humble yourself? But I thought that his heart was made hard. Well, yeah. But he's, but, but wait, 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 but is, is he refusing? Or is his heart being made? I think, yes, yes. This is, the, this is the mystery. This is the, this is the thing that I don't think that we can quantify. We can't put it in a Petri dish or a test tube and, and show it to each other. There's, there's something of the mystery of God here. And I'm gonna say this one last thing and then we'll move on. When Jesus comes, comes to earth, he, he comes to his own and his own do not receive him. And the people who he had it out with the most were the religious leaders. Ironically, the Pharisees. I mean, the people who should have seen him coming. And he says something fascinating in John chapter five. He's, he's in this back and forth with them. And he says to them, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. And they speak of me. And yet you refuse to believe in me. There's this volitional language. It's like Jesus comes and he offers himself for real. Does Jesus come and offer himself to the Pharisees but then prevent them from being able to receive him? Because that seems cruel. If my little girl, who you just saw, if she's thirsty and I've got water and I offer it to her, but I just hold it high enough that she can't get to it, I'm a bad dad. I don't think that's what the Lord is doing here. I think that there's mystery. I think that the Lord has hardened Pharaoh after six plagues. He gave Pharaoh over to his wishes. And it's because Pharaoh's heart was hard. I can't make any more sense of that. I don't think it's one of the two extremes. I don't think that in his heart of hearts, Pharaoh really wants to honor the Lord, really wants to obey Yahweh, really wants to let the people of Israel go, but the Lord is refusing to let him do that. I don't think that's what the text is saying. And that, that statement of Jesus in John 5, I'm here, you search the scriptures, they speak of me, I'm here, here I am, but you refuse to believe in me. It's like you know better, I'm doing the miracles, I'm doing the teachings, and yet you refuse. It's because they wanted their position, they wanted their power. The same thing with Pharaoh. He wants his position, he wants his power, and his heart is his hard. So the locusts are coming, verse six, and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, of, as neither your father nor your grandfathers have seen from the day that they came on the earth until this day. And then he turned and he went out from Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's servants said to him, how long Shall this man be a snare to us? It's the same question that was asked in, in verse three. How long will you refuse to humble yourself? His, his own servants ask him, how long shall this, be, this, man be, this man Moses be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not understand that Egypt is ruined? I think it's, a, it's, it's fascinating that um, the land that flourished under Joseph it survived an intense famine because Joseph was there, Joseph was blessed of the Lord, Joseph was given wisdom by the Lord, and the Pharaoh, the king, was humble enough to listen to an enemy Israelite prisoner in the land. Even though they suffered a famine for seven years, they planned ahead, and those seven years, 
they survived and they were even able to bless the people around them because they listened to this guy Joseph. That very same land is now, is now ruined. Uh, and these locusts, these locusts are going to, to eat whatever is, is left. It says, they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. Um, remember what just happened though, a, a, a plague or two back was the hail. And the, the hail destroyed just about everything, but chapter 9, verse 32, it says that the flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in ear and the flax was in bud, but the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming. So there was still food available, even after the hail came and destroyed almost everything, the seeds that were in the ground were still able to grow. And on one hand, you see that and you're like, see, the, that's, that is a grace. The plague, of the, the, the plague of hail has come and gone, and yet there's still an opportunity to eat. There's still food in the ground. Things will still grow. That's God's grace. Repent. Let the people go. The land hasn't been utterly destroyed. As we're going to see, there's still cattle. There's still, there's still animals. The, the land still has some uh, resources left. But what that also means is that if Pharaoh continues to be hard in heart, there's other things to destroy. There was still food in the ground that was able to grow and the Lord's saying, there's a grace, there's still food, but if you refuse, the locusts will eat even that. Even that will, will fall to, to the next plague. And so verse seven, when Pharaoh's servants, how, how long shall this man be a snare to us? The land is ruined, verse eight. So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh and he said to them, go serve the Lord, your God, but which ones of you are to go? Isn't that the voice of the enemy? That's, that's, that sounds a lot like the serpent in Genesis three right there. Did God really say, are you sure? Is that what he meant? When Jesus, when Jesus comes, he gets baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. Immediately, the Spirit takes him in the wilderness to be, to be tempted. And at Jesus' baptism, the skies broke open. The Spirit descended as if, as if he were a dove. The Father says, this is my beloved Son, whom, who I am well pleased. Jesus goes into the wilderness, and the first thing the devil says to him is, if, if you're really the Son of God, you shouldn't be hungry. Turn these stones into bread. A little bit of doubt. A little bit of questioning. Bypass the cross, Jesus. Don't do this the, don't do this the Lord's way. I can, I can make it easy. I'll give you all the kingdoms. I'll give you all the nations. They'll all bow down before you, and you can bypass the cross. You can, get, you can go around the Lord's wisdom and the Lord's plan. You can take a shortcut, and I'm the guy that can get it done for you. This is, you guys can go worship. Okay, fine, you can go. But who's going? Pharaoh does this several times. First, he says, you're not going at all. Then he says, okay, you can go, but you can't go far. You can't go three days. And now he's saying, okay, you can go, but not everyone's going to go with you, right? Compromise. This is what the devil does. And man, it can be pernicious, and that pernicious little bit of compromise can grow into a plague in our lives. Yeah, you can love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and hold on to your sexual promiscuity. You can do that. He doesn't mind. Now, when you bring something like that up, I have to say, works don't save you. you, you I mean, you actually physically can do that. You can be saved and step back into sin, but the Lord will correct you out of it because he loves you. 
But if you refuse that correction, and friends, those of, most of you know my story, I could spend a half an hour to 45 minutes up here telling you how my hard heart, saved by the blood of Jesus, and yet my hard heart was still in the process of being worked over by the Lord, and it was my hardness of heart, my refusal to just lay myself down at him completely in this life to do the thing that he wanted me to do, which was to stay in Portland. I'm convinced that that is what, those choices that I was making to rebel, as a saved, as a saved young man, living in this semblance of rebellion, the Lord allowed me to end up under a dog pile of Portland police officers. My choices got me there, but I also think that the Lord let that happen to finally snap me out of it and realize that he is, worth, that he is good, man. You, wanna, you, wanna, you, you want peace? You want prosperity? You want to live forever? Yahweh is the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Go ahead and serve the Lord, but hold on to a little bit of something. That's, that's, that's the voice of Satan right there. But Moses is not deterred. Romans 8 says, if he is for us, who can be against us? Moses boldly said, we will go with our young, our old, our sons, our daughters, our flocks, and our herds. I'm taking everything, Pharaoh. I'm not holding anything back. We must hold a feast to the Lord. And, but he said to him, the Lord be with you if I ever let you go at all. Uh, if I ever let you and your little ones go, look, you have some evil purpose in mind. Um, just very briefly, you have some evil purpose in mind. I wonder, I don't need a show of hands, but I wonder if anybody here has been following the Lord faithfully, fidelity to the Lord, uh, infidelity to the Lord, and the world has accused you of some evil. You know, the early church was accused of cannibalism because there's this language we have about the body of Christ and the blood of Christ and and the, the, the naysayers were standing outside the church wagging their fingers saying, oh, those filthy Christians are in there with their, their, their weird monogamy and they're helping the poor and the sick and they're eating Jesus' body. They're weird. Christians don't fit in around here. Jesus said, if they hated me, they're gonna hate you. The world sees fidelity to the Lord and, 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 and draws the conclusion that there's some sort of evil coming, going on or at least some sort of stupidity. I have been, I, it's, it's comic, the looks that I've gotten. I just recently, just like in the last two weeks, sat down with an old family member that I haven't seen in years, told him I'm a Christian, told him I'm a, I'm a pastor, and he was like, well, well, so, you watching the, you watching the Super Bowl? Man, I got 50 bucks on, like, he just didn't want it, like, he just thought I was so dumb. He didn't even know how to respond. He changes the subject, he changed the subject. That's been my experience. I, I haven't even experienced persecution, per se. I just get looked at, like I'm that guy pushing on a pole door, you know? <laughs> People just look at me like, oh, this poor, this poor old man, this poor kid, dude, whatever. You have evil in minds, verse 11. No, go, you and the men among you serve the Lord, for that is what you were seeking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and they may eat every plant in the land and that all that, uh, that they may eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. That's chapter nine, verse 32. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind had brought locusts. The locusts came up over the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts that had never been seen before and will never be seen again. And they covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. 
And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. And not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now there is a hint right there. Verse 16, he says, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Therefore, verse 17, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. Um, it's, it's interesting. This is another, this is another complexity of, of the Christian life. It's something that we've talked about a lot. It's something that I'm, I'm, that I battle on a personal level, just with just people that I know, um, and part of my own story. Uh, Pharaoh has these moments. The narrative, the narrative is punctuated with these moments where Pharaoh communicates this like, okay, I tap out, you win. Forgive me, you can go. But is he ever sincere? Not once, not once. As, as we'll see, not even when the death of the firstborn come does he remain repentant. He, but he doesn't like to suffer, and who can blame him? In verse 16, he says, I've sinned against the Lord, your God. He doesn't say Yahweh, he doesn't say the Lord of the earth, he doesn't say anything like that. He says, your God, the God that you believe in. Which seems to indicate that Pharaoh is still on his high horse. Pharaoh was considered a God. He was considered the son of, the son of Ra, the sun God. And his son, Pharaoh's son, would be the hope of Egypt. He'd be the heir of the sun God. You're, you're God I've sinned against. So get out of here and maybe, they'll, maybe there'll be peace. He's not repentant. He wants the death. He says, remove this death from me. He wants, the, he wants suffering to be removed, but he doesn't want the Lord. And man, this is a tricky thing. This is, a, this is, a, this is, another, this is another one of those pernicious truths. It's, it's pretty easy whenever the, the cancer comes in or whenever the financial reversal shows up or the relationship falls apart or the subduction happens and the whole West Coast breaks off into the Pacific Ocean. There's things that can happen where we're like, okay, we cry out to God for help, but we actually don't want God. Have you ever done this? Has this been a part of your story? Do you know anybody that's done this? We have no interest in Yahweh. We do not love him. We do not want him. We just want him to make things easier for us. This is what John chapter 6 is all about. We want you to make things easy for us. Remember how the Lord provided manna for 40 years in the desert for Israel? We want you to do that. That's what we want. No interest in him. No interest in what it was that his signs were indicating. His signs signified something about him, but they did not care about him. They just cared about what he could do. One person said it very poignantly one time. They said, I don't love God, but I, I don't really like God, but I, I, like his, I like his money. I like what he can give me. That doesn't work in a dating relationship. That doesn't work in a marriage. That doesn't work for friends. How many celebrities have come out lately? Now that we can listen to podcasts and we have Instagram and social media, we have so much more immediate access to the talking heads of the world and so many of them say, I don't know who my friends are. I don't know who's actually a friend and who just wants me to help pay their rent. I don't know who's just looking for something. Pharaoh is looking for something. Never mind your God, your God, not my God. Make him stop this. That's very different than being Christian. 
That's very different than being born again. Christians take the suffering. We, we want the Lord more than anything, and if that incurs suffering, then so be it. And Paul writes that in every epistle that he penned. Count it joy, First Peter writes. Count it joy when you've come into various trials. Jesus, Jesus said in John chapter 16, in this life you will have tribulation, but take heart. He says in this world you've had tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Christians take Yahweh, and it's a great, it's a, it's a, it's a great uh, maturing of the soul because you, you see where you really lie when you enter into different forms of suffering. And I've shared it before. One of the most intense moments of suffering in my life was, watch, was my dad dying in my arms. But man, it was so cool to watch that turn into an opportunity for worship so quickly because he was out of pain, he was in heaven, he was with Jesus, and all of that is possible because of what Jesus did on the cross. My dad was a fallen, broken, damned sinner until he met Jesus. Jesus called him out of the dominion of darkness and put him in the kingdom of light. And when my dad died, he went to heaven. So my dad's death was this opportunity to say, thank you, Jesus, that death leads to life. The sting of death has been taken. Pharaoh has no interest in any of this. Just knock off this nonsense. So, verse 18, he went out from Pharaoh and he pleaded with the Lord and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea, and not a single locust was left in the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. The ninth plague, the plague of darkness, verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. A lot of ink has been committed to figuring out how did the Egyptians have darkness and how did the Israelites have light. And I'm gonna sum it up for you. Uh -huh. I have no idea. I, was it an eclipse? Was, I, I'm not even gonna, I don't, I don't know. But I believe it happened. I don't believe that this is allegory or it's poetic. I think that this literally, physically, objectively happened. So they had light. And Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones may go with you, only this time let not your flocks or your herds remain behind. Pharaoh is running out of options. Don't go. Don't go far. Go, but not all of you can go. Go, all of you can go, but don't take your animals. I love that. I love that. The Lord wins. The Lord wins. Praise God he wins. It's good news that he wins. Pharaoh's running out of options. But Moses said, you must also let us have our sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Verse 26, our livestock must also go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God, and we don't know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. And Pharaoh said to him, get out, uh, get away from me, and take care to never see my face again, for on the day that you see my face again, you shall die. And Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. Um, this is really sad to me. You know, when, I think I mentioned, I mentioned last week that, that 
I, you know, I, I'm a man who had a hard heart towards the Lord, and a number of things happened where I think the Lord was dr- the drawing me to him, and he was one by one cutting off. He was taking, I was talking with our, our elder Mel this week, and the way that, uh, the, the language that Mel used, I really like. He said that the Lord's taking the heat out of the idols. He's taking the allure away from them. Because depending, I mean, idols can be very sexy, they can be very stimulating, they can be very satisfying for a time. But as we've seen one by one, the, the, the idols of Egypt are being taken down. And even the, even the magicians of Pharaoh, who were at one point able to mimic what God was doing miraculously, eventually they ran out of gas. They got to a point where they couldn't do the signs and plagues anymore, that the Lord was proved to be more powerful than them. He was stronger, he was more powerful, and he had more longevity because he's God. And then even with the, with the plague of boils, not only could they not do the plagues anymore, but they actually fell prey to them. They couldn't even stand before Moses because there was, plague, there was boils on the bottom of their feet. Whenever the world tries to, tries to take God on, God always, always wins. And when I fought, wrestled with the Lord, and I ended up looking at a two and a half year jail sentence, and the, the day that the day that my, I was in court and they dropped my case and they released me of all my charges and I was free to go. I didn't have so much as a parking ticket at this point. I remember there was, a, there was this moment, it was almost like this threshold in time and what I, what I, where I could go back to what I was doing. The Lord gave me a get out of jail free card, literally. And I had a choice. I could go back to running and gunning and stealing and snorting and smoking and, and having sex with whoever I wanted to and, and, and defying God in all the ways that I knew how, rejecting him, hating him, being angry at him, spreading lies about who he is to the community of people that I knew in Portland. I had a choice to go back doing that, but I didn't. I repented and I started following Jesus. Why? And last week what I said is like, I don't know. I don't know why I made that choice. That's that mystery of human volition and God calling. But you know, I've been thinking about that all week. And I, you know what I remember distinctly? I remember this so clearly now. I just took some time to reflect on it. When my court case was dropped, this overwhelming sense of safety came over me. Like no matter what happens, I'm okay if I'm in him. If I'm sitting at the bar slamming my, my cocaine, and I've got some girl whose name I can't remember under my arm, and I'm, and I'm lining up 15, 16 drinks down, down the bar. I, I've done that, my, my, I did that all through my 20s. Every single person that I was hiding in, yeah, because I was hiding, I was hiding. I was hiding from all sorts of stuff. And I was hiding with people who were hiding. And whenever the, whenever the, Whenever, the do- whenever, the, my la- whenever my last dollar bill was spent, whenever it really came up to nothing, whenever terror really struck, when the plagues fell on the land, everybody that I was with would gather up their chump change and their vodka shot and they would leave. And I'd be left alone. And that's what, that's what facing two and a half years in jail really opened my eyes to is I have nothing. I have no friends. I've got a bunch of guys I get drunk with. But in the Lord, I have eternal safety no matter what happens. No matter what happens. And, and getting pulled away from a two and a half year jail sentence just made that so poignant and so real. I knew I, I, I want that, I trust that, I trust that God. I trust him, that's grace. I was looking at jail, I'm not going to jail. I don't know why, I deserve it. Oh, that's the gospel, dummy. <laughs> it just clicked and I wanted him. 
A couple years later, I was sitting with my dad as he was gaunt, suffering from, from cancer. Not, not the life that I wanted, you know? My dad will never know my little girl and the baby that we have on the way, my wife and I. My dad will never know them. My dad never got to see me as a pastor. He got to see me as a drunk. He died three months after I got hired here. That's not the way I would have written the story. But man, I trust the Lord and I want him and I will, I will turn away from him for nothing. If you took my dad for, with cancer, what cancer that we were told wouldn't kill him, yes and amen, praise God. I, you're doing something I don't understand, but I trust you. Pharaoh didn't want that. Pharaoh didn't think that. I don't, and I don't know why. All of these plagues, the darkness comes and here his heart is still hard and the Lord gives him over to that hardness. He, he hardens his heart he doesn't want anything to do with the safety. The Israelites are over there getting a suntan while the Egyptians are in total darkness. They can't even see their hand in front of their face. Pharaoh knew that, and yet he didn't just say, I want, okay, I give up. Yahweh, you, you are king. You are Lord. I give myself to you. Chapter 11. Pretty, pretty short chapter. We'll get, we'll get through this quickly. So the Lord said to Moses, yet one more strike, one more affliction, one more plague that I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt, and afterward he will let you go from here. And so <laughs> this is the strong hand. In chapter 3, the Lord said to Moses, I know that Pharaoh will not let you go unless it is with a strong hand. And the strong hand has been slowly graciously putting on the pressure, giving opportunity after opportunity after opportunity for Pharaoh to repent. Pharaoh has refused. He has hardened his heart. He has now remained in that hardness. And now the final, the final axe is being drawn. The, 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 the heavy hand is coming. Verse 2, speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man his neighbor and every woman her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. We'll come, we'll come back to that. And the Lord gave the people Pharaoh in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt and in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. As hard as Pharaoh's heart was, the people were starting to get it. The people understood. And we'll, we'll again, we'll see more of that to come. Verse 4, so Moses said, <laughs> this is interesting because we were just told, Pharaoh's like, get out of here. If you ever see my face again, I'll kill you. Verse 4, chapter 11, Moses said, who's he, who's he talking to? So Moses said, thus saith the Lord, about midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all of the firstborn of the cattle. Nine plagues later, and there's still cattle alive. Nine plagues later, and there's still a little bit of that grace sprinkled in. Not everything is dead. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been and never will be again. But not even a dog shall growl against the people of Israel. That uh, verse 7 is actually translated that not a dog shall sharpen his tongue against the people of Israel. There will be zero aggression against the people of Israel. Oh, hold on a second, sorry. Uh, against any of the people of Israel, neither man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel, and all of these your servants shall come down and bow down to me, saying, get out, of, get out, you and all the people who follow you, 
and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. So chapter 10, Pharaoh says, get out of here. If you ever see me again, you're going to die. And then at some point, Moses sneaks back in, and now he's leaving Pharaoh's presence again. A lot of, a lot of theories on why or how that happened. Um, I think for our case tonight, it, does, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's, it, my, my personal, all the opinions that have been thrown out there, my personal feeling is that um, Pharaoh probably was just mad, and he said, get out of here, and next time I see you, I'll kill you. But, you know, Moses is obviously a, kind of a man of power and in charge, and something's going on with this guy. And um, at some point, I think he came back in, and Pharaoh kind of forgot what he said when he was angry. But maybe that's not the case. I, I don't know. Um, but in any, whatever the case may be, he is with Pharaoh again, and he leaves in a hot anger. And the Lord said to Moses, verse 9, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. After, after the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart the first time, in chapter 9, every time after that, Pharaoh's heart is hardened by the Lord. It's, it's, it's what they call causative. It's, it's an active hardening. And he did not let the people of Israel go out of this land. Chapter 12. This is a long one. Stick with me. Let's see what we can do. Chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. This is a new beginning. Um, this, we're, so in chapter 12, we're going we're gonna to touch on the Passover. We're going to touch on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We're going to touch on, on this. It's, a, it's the first of the months for you. There's a lot of technical truths that are going on here. There's a lot about the, the, the timetable of Israel, a lot about how they, how they tell time, the months, what the feasts are, when the feasts are celebrated. There's all this stuff. Um, for tonight, I think I'm, I'm going to shy away from that stuff a little bit. Um, and, and focus more on the, like, the more pastoral uh, theological issues that are at play here. The, the more, I don't want to, this isn't, I don't mean this disrespectfully, but like the, the, the nerdy, detailed, cool, like connection of all the dots, like this, this passage and this, pa- this festival is connected to this one, and this is what Deuteronomy 16 is talking about, and this is the festival that Jesus would have gone to. All, all of that's there. It's all good stuff. Um, but just a heads up, I'm going to focus more on the, the, the emotional, the, 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 the theological, and what's, what's happening to the people here. So this will, this will be a new beginning. This month shall be uh, a beginning of months for you. Uh, and so, and so this, will, this, will, this will be, from here on out, this will be a, a, new, a new year. Uh, but this also will be a new beginning. This is where the, the people of Israel really do come forth. They were a scattered people with Abraham. They, they solidified in Egypt after Joseph's reign and his brothers came back with their father and all the people came back during the famine years. And Exodus starts with the people of Israel multiplying and being fruitful, which is how the Bible began, be fruitful and multiply. And then the serp- it's this new creation. It's this image of, like, of, of earth after the flood. It's this, it's this new opportunity. There's been a cleansing, there's been a restart, and then the serpent comes back in and tries to step on the head of the people, so to speak. He tries to, he tries to deceive them. He tries to kill them. 
Um, the serpent comes in and he lies to Adam and Eve. Pharaoh comes in and he subjugates the people into slavery. And now we're at another, another restart. They're being released from bondage. And this is when the time of like the real people of Israel begins. They're no longer in slavery. They're gonna be released from Egypt. This is a new beginning. And man, every new beginning that we have, every new day, every new year, every new opportunity is, is a moment to pause and think of the Passover. Jesus died for me. Praise God. Every new beginning should be marked like this. Tell the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, shall you make your, make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a year old male. You may take it from the sheep, or from the goats, and you may keep it, and you keep it, you shall keep it till the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Just a, just a quick note on that after I just said I'm not going to do this. Uh, the 10th to the 14th, it's just interesting to con consider. I, 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 I don't know exactly why that command is there. Maybe, maybe somebody here does, but a couple of the ideas that I heard thrown around that are interesting is one, one was that those four days were given to the people looking over the lamb and making sure that it was in fact spotless and without blemish. And then another consideration is that on the 10th, you take the lamb, and then for three days, the 11th, the 12th, and the 13th, you, you remember the plague of darkness. You, you don't kill the lamb. It's just, a, it's just a memory. It's remembering back to the plague of darkness, those three days when there was no movement. And then on the 14th day, the last day, is whenever you, you take the lamb and you kill it. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. That word twilight in the Hebrew is really fascinating. It means between two suns. It means that you kill the lamb at the time when the sun is beginning to set, but it's not yet completely dark. It's between, it's between the two days. Verse seven, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts of the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread, with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head and its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this matter you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. This is the Lord's Passover. So uh, the, the blood, <laughs> the blood that is shed will be put on the doorposts. And if you think, this is, this, is, this is identified in Hebrews 11, verse 28, as an act of faith. In faith, they put the blood over the doorposts. And we, I think that maybe we, we have this unfortunate tendency to become so like familiar with Scripture um, that we don't think of it afresh. We don't think about the depth of it or the nuance of it because we just kind of roll over and we think, yeah, I've heard that story before. The lamb is, saves them from the angel of death or from the, uh, and then Jesus came and he was the lamb takes God. Yeah, yeah, I know the story. Um, but if you think about it, this really is an act of faith. Because think, think about how weird this is. There's not yet been really any context for what's, for what's going on. We have an opportunity to leave Egypt. Let's take it. Why sit around and make unleavened bread and have like this very fastidious way of killing this lamb and, 
and painting blood on the doorpost. Why, why, why do that? Why do that? Because um, the Lord said so, and the Lord, the Lord has a plan. The Lord is doing something. So they did this in an, in an act of faith, because if, if, you, if you don't know what's going on, this does seem kind of weird. You know, you pretend that you don't know the story for a moment. This, this command seems uh, a little bit odd. To wipe blood on the doorpost and to eat, this, to eat this animal in this way. And in this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, the sandals on your, with sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. Do the process. Kill the lamb. Make the bread. Put the blood on the doorposts. But also at a moment's notice, be ready to go. Be ready to get out of here. This is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. The Lord is preparing for us a place. And if, you say, if it were not so, would I have told you that I, that I go to prepare a place for you? If I go, I will come again to take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also, John 14. We have an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Keep moving, friends. I don't know what's besetting you. I don't know what's hurting you. But man, Paul's got so many encouraging things to say about running the race and fighting the fight and keeping the faith no matter what comes. We, we're not fighting for victory, we're fighting from it. We're not trying to earn our way into heaven. Jesus has, has, has saved us a seat there already. We're motivated by joy, we're motivated by gratitude, not by stress and anxiety of, of am I good enough, have I done enough? Jesus has done it all. He cried out on the cross, it is finished. Do, do your business here, kill the lamb, Kill, 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 the, kill, kill the lamb, put the, lentil, put the blood on the doorpost. Remember, remember what Jesus did and do your work. Fight the good fight. Keep the faith. Keep your shoes on. We're not sticking around here for much longer. I love it. I love it. For I will pass through the land, verse 12. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land, both man and beast and all of the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Uh, Numbers, for a cross-reference verse, Numbers 33, the first few verses say this. These are the stages of the people of Israel when they went out from the land of Egypt by their companies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. This is Numbers 33, 1 through 5. Moses wrote down their starting places stage by stage by the command of the Lord. And these are their stages according to the starting places. They set out from Ramses in in the first month, on the 15th day of the first month, on the day after the Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly, triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord God had struck down among them, and on their gods also the Lord had executed judgments. The powers that the Egyptians worshipped, I don't think were made up powers. I think that they, I think that they, were, bowing down, but they were bowing down before real demonic, demonic entities. And the power that the magicians had was, was a real authentic power. We're warned that when Antichrist comes, there's so many connections here to end times. Whenever Antichrist comes, he will deceive people with false signs and wonders. There'll be real demonic powers, and that's why we have to test the spirits. When miracles are performed, when prophecies seem to come true, when stuff like that takes place, does it, are, they, are they done in a way that elevates the name of the risen Christ, or do they elevate the person who's doing them? easy test. It's easy to get caught up in the fanatic and, and the electric and the stimulating and the phenomenal and the, and the miraculous, but we're warned in Deuteronomy, we're warned by Jesus, we're being warned here. Um, 
there's false, there's false gods. And Jesus said, and the Lord says, I've, I'm, I'm, I've even brought judgment down on them. I think, I think that's why the second plague was a plague of frogs. I think that was a slap in the face to the false god, Heket, a woman's body and a frog's head. The Lord's saying, that's not a god. I'm, I'm Yahweh. The Lord, the, the, the blood, verse 13, shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Um, this is so rich that I don't, even, I don't even know how to address it. At the end of a long day, getting kind of late, already been up here for almost an hour. This, this, is, this is pointing, so, this, is, this is the pointer to Jesus Christ. We're told in the scriptures that the Israelites fell prey to this idol worship, that they even worshiped some of the idols that Egypt worshiped. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 20 says that. They're not impervious to death. They're not innocent. They're God's chosen people. They're the family of promise, but they are in no way, I mean, this leader, Moses, is a murderer. This is not a, this is not a, a spotless, pure, perfect people. They're going to die just like everybody else is, whether here tonight, whenever the Lord passes judgment over Egypt, or eventually, they need to be saved. We need to be saved. Nobody gets out of here alive. And the only thing that saves us, the only thing that, that prevents us from living an agonizing reality of only looking forward ultimately to atrophy, old age, decay, and death is our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, who defeated death. The Lamb of God who went, as a, as a lamb goes before the shearers, silent. The Old Testament, the old, the old English word is dumb. Jesus went before his executioners and he kept his mouth shut. He was reviled, but he did not revile back. Why? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That is you. Josh made a, made a, made a point this morning. It's a, it's a beautiful, it's an amazing point. It's something I've been saying for a long time. I've heard a lot of people say, agnostics and atheists and those types say, man, well, if we're the only planet on, in the solar system or in outer space that has any life on it, what a waste of outer space. That's an unfortunate way of looking at it. How much love does God have? How much patience does God have? How much mercy does he have? How much hope does he have to offer you? Well, take a look at the James Webb Telescope capturing images from, what is it, like 12 billion light years away? There's space out there that Moses didn't know about, that David didn't know about. There's creatures in the ocean that we're just now discovering that God created and no one, ever know, no one even knew that they were there until just recently. He's that big. He's, he, that, as, as big as that is, the depths of the ocean, seven, feet, seven miles down, I think is as far as we've gotten, seven miles down, 12 billion light years into outer space. As big as that is, as, as beyond computation as that is, the Lord is bigger. He spoke it into existence. That's the God who has you. That's the God who holds you. That's the God who loves you. That's the God who sent his one and only son to die for you. If you're getting freaked out about something in your life, that's fine, but remember to be grounded in him. It's not a waste of space. As big as outer space is, it's just a testimony to how big he is, because he's bigger than that. Um, 
This happens every once in a while. I get on a little side tangent like that, and I forget, I forget where I was. Um, so, I will pass through the land of Egypt at night, strike all the firstborn. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you. Jesus, Jesus' blood shed. That's, that's what all of this is about. That's what all of this is leading to. In his sovereignty, in his, mas- his mastermind brilliance, he knew that nobody could, be, could meet the standard of the law, so he sent his only son to do that for us. What, could, what can he have that he can't just make for himself? He's God. You. That's not a relationship if he forces you into it. Nobody likes a relationship like that. He sent his son to save you, to to cover you under the blood. Whenever the father looks at you, you're washed in the blood of Jesus. Colossians 1 says that you're holy and blameless and above reproach. Remember that, friends. Holy and blameless and above reproach. The angel of death passed over the Israelites because they were covered by the blood. Every one of these Israelites died eventually. And we will die eventually, but only in Christ do we have life eternal. That's what this is pointing to. We will not be saved from death here, but we can be saved from the second death because of what Jesus has done. And what Jesus eventually will do is being pointed to right here. This day shall be for you a memorial. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, And on the first day you shall remove leaven out of your house. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Being cut off from Israel, some people think that that means killed. And some people think that that just means kicked out of the family um, for a time. And some people think that means kicked out of the family for good. Um, If any of you know what it is, I'd love to know. Because I I honestly, I, I don't. I don't know exactly. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly on the seventh day. A holy assembly, no work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared for you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. What did leaven ever do to anybody? You know, it seems like it's getting a bad rap. Uh, we're, we're, told in, we're told in the New Testament, I mean, the leaven, leaven becomes an image, an image of sin, an image of compromise, a, an image of what Pharaoh said when he said, go, go ahead and serve the Lord, but that that but, that, that reticence to go full steam ahead with the Lord, it's a little bit of leaven. And what, the, what we're taught in the New Testament is that little bit of compromise, that little bit of sin, even in a saved soul, can wreak havoc in your life here. Be pure, be spotless. No leaven, no leaven in the bread. For on this, on this very day, I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. <laughs> I love you too, babe. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your house. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened, in all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Verse 21, And then Moses called the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb, and take a bunch of hyssop 
and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel to, and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. Do not go back out into the land where death is coming. Um, it's a fascinating connection. And it's one of the reasons why I really don't believe that a bunch of goat herders on the back of Mount Ararat wrote the Bible while they were smoking hashish and throwing rocks at, at ground squirrels. Um, because of the 67,000 hyperlink connections that the Bible has, notice that the command is to take, verse 22, is to take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood and then paint the blood on the doorpost. When he was hanging on the cross, just about to die, do you guys remember what was offered up to Jesus? Vinegar on a sponge that was put on a hyssop branch? That's not a mistake. You read that in John chapter 19. John 19, John's gospel is fascinating for so many reasons. John adds all these little details. 153 fish at the end of the story, the, the perfume that, that Mary uh, poured on Jesus' feet, he notes that the smell, the fragrance of the perfume went throughout the house. Why does he say stuff like that? Well, in one sense, it's because he was just an eyewitness who was there who was describing what he saw. Simple as that. But there's also a deeper connection. The hyssop branch that was used to paint the door with blood is the same kind of branch that was offered up to Jesus when he was shedding his blood for the sins of the world. None of you shall go out from the door of his house until the morning. There's so many lessons there, but we got to keep going. Verse 23, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will, no, will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. <sighs> praise God. God, praise God. That's a worship verse right there. The destroyer will pass over you. Death, death will come. Physical death will come, man. But we're safe from that. Oh, death, where is your power? Oh, death, where is your sting? Death is swallowed up in victory, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep his serv this service. Um, this, is, this is meant to be a feast of remembrance, Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is meant to be something that is done so that we do not forget what the Lord has done for us. Um, don't forget and don't grow complacent. And it's interesting, by the time we get to the book of Judges, chapter 2, you can read this. Write down Judges 2, verse 10. I Israel has forgotten. Israel has forgot. Friends, don't forget what the Lord has done for you. Don't, don't forget so that what he's done for you influences your life, the way that you live, the way that you treat strangers, the way that you treat people you don't like, people you don't agree with, people you don't understand. Approach everybody through the, gospel, through the lens of what Jesus has done for you, who didn't revile back when he was reviled, who went to the cross for people who were spitting on him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Before he said that, he said, Lord, forgive them, they know not what they do. Approach people like that. Live your life like that. But also whenever you feel down in the dumps, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, guess I'll go eat worms. Remember what the Lord has done for you. Remember who you are to him. Remember the story of Hagar in Genesis chapter 16. In a horrible situation, an unfair situation. And she gets pregnant with Abraham's offspring. She leaves the house because the emotional, the, 
the relationship is too emotionally toxic and she, she takes off a pregnant woman alone into the wilderness. It's not an easy decision to make. She's rejected, she's, she's, she becomes odious to the family. None of it's fair, none of it's right. It's all of a hot mess. But even there in that place, in the wilderness, alone, without resource, pregnant and scared, the Lord went and found her. He loves you. The blood has been painted on the doorpost. It's not your blood. You couldn't, your blood's not good enough. God's blood had to be put on the doorpost. So that we'll never see death. Death is swallowed up in victory. So remember this year by year. Remember this, hold this feast. Uh, verse 20, let's go verse, where was I? Verse 27. And when you come to this land, the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you do this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our house. And the people bowed their heads and they worshiped. And the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And so they did. One quick word about the kids. Um, actually, I'll say it in a minute. Verse 29, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, or in the pit, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all of his servants, and the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead, and then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night, and he said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, if you have said. Be gone, and bless me also. Take your flocks and your herds, as you, and go. This is what the Lord said would happen. The Lord said, Go to Moses, go take these people, get them out of Egypt, tell Pharaoh to let my people go but he won't let that happen. So with a hard hand, I'm gonna have to influence him. With a hard hand, he'll let the people go, and the hard hand has fallen. You know what, friends, if, any, if there's anybody here, I can speak from personal experience, if you feel the Lord flicking you in the heartstrings, telling you to do something, or to stop doing something, can you, do you believe that A, he loves you, and he's protecting you one way or another, and B, you can fight him, you can kick against, if you're his kid, He's going to win. He's going to win. My little girl tries to touch things that are hot. She tries to touch things that are sharp. She tries to walk down the stairs head first. She, she wants to do all of these things. And for now, I win every time. I'm her father. I'm looking out for her. I care for her. I don't want her to break her nose or burn her fingerprints off. And I, I, I keep her away from those things. Do you feel the Lord urging you one way or the other? Or are you, do you feel the Lord right now? This is a difficult one. Do you feel the Lord right now putting his hand on your shoulder and saying, I know that there's so many directions and things and opportunities and stuff. Sit and wait. Just wait. Josh considered this with, with Noah and the ark. The Noah, the Noah and the ark, the, the, the waters abated, they receded. The ark rested in the mountains. The water was gone. And yet for another seven days, the Lord said, don't you go out that door, just wait. With the stinky animals, and the poop and the hay and the pee and the whatever it is that animals are, are doing and they produce. You stay in that box until I tell you you can leave. 
That's the hardest one for me when the Lord says, shh, wait. Okay, let's get through this, guys. I'm sorry, this is just so much good stuff. And the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. They said, they said we shall all be dead. And the people took the dough before it was leavened in their kneading bowls, being bound up in their cloaks and their, on their shoulders. And the people of Israel uh, had done what Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and for gold, for jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Now this, this, this loot that the Israelites get, part of it's like, well, they've been in slavery for 400 years, so... They've earned it. This is also, this is also uh, this is a blessing from the Lord that they're going to use in the tabernacle. Whenever the time of the tabernacle comes, they're going to need all of this gold to melt down and make all the utensils and everything for the tabernacle. But you know the first thing that they do after the tabernacle is built? They take some of this gold and they make a golden calf in chapter 32. All these instructions about the tabernacle, this tall, this wide, this deep, this kind of utensil here, this many dimensions, inches, Sarah's of this. And then when it's all completed, the first thing that they do is they trip out about Moses being on the Smoky Mountain, which I kind of don't blame them. Probably a pretty scary sight. 40 days go by and they're like, yo, let's make, a, let's make some bovine. Melt some of that gold. They were given a gift. Some think that the Egyptians were saying, hey, take my gold rings, take my gold watch, my Rolex, the citizen, take it all. Take the Bentley, just get out of here. <laughs> just, just go away. That might be part of it. But they're blessed monetarily. They're given, they're given much riches. And one of the things that they do with it later is they take the blessing of the Lord and they turn it into a golden calf. They got out of Egypt, but the Egypt is still in them a little bit. Sanctification is a process. Verse 37, and the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. There's a lot of writing about that number, 600,000 men plus women and children. Let me just say this, be fruitful and multiply. 600,000 besides women and children. Um, some think that that's 600,000 men just of military age, 20 to 50, um, but that's a debate. But it, doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't change the fact that there's a lot of people here. Israel has been fruitful and has multiplied, has been released from slavery, and the time of Israel's life has really begun. Verse 38, and a mixed multitude, a bunch of, bunch of non-Jews came with them, went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds, and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. And the time of the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on the very day, all the, Lord, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt, so that on the same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout all their generations. So throughout all their generations, whenever we, if you're a parent, whenever we teach our kids the disciplines of Bible reading, scripture memorization, Bible study, repentance, abstaining from sin, being a part of a church body regularly in the community, not forsaking the gathering together as some have, the book of Hebrews says, whenever we teach them that, let's not teach them you do that because I said so. 
I, I, I heard a lot of this. Well, it's just what this family does. We go to church. We brush our teeth. We put on our stockings. We put on our best shoes. Wear a tie. We're going to church. Why? Because it's what we do. We're from Texas. We're Oklahomans. It's God's country. Whatever. Like we, that, friends, don't, don't do that. Man, I, I, and I have an opportunity to be a big old hypocrite here because right now my daughter's too, too young to talk back, but the day is coming. She's a Cornell for show. And I'm going to have to teach her, honey, Jesus Christ is the most amazing person. He is God in the flesh. He died to save you from hell. He wants you. He loves you way more than your mom and I do. We're going to go hang out with his people and worship him and remember what he did throughout all your generations. Teach your kids, your grandkids, the beauty of Jesus Christ, not just the weird trinkets. We go to church, we don't cuss, we don't smoke, we don't chew, we don't hang with guys and girls that do. That's all fine and good. But if we lose the reason behind it, if we lose the person behind it, we lose everything. It becomes rote, mechanical, religious, weird stuff. Teach our children about Jesus Christ. Whew! We have an opportunity to raise up a generation. Man, couldn't look around America. It could use a generation of God-fearing, Jesus-loving children. Could it not? Verse 43, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is a statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought with money may eat of it after you've circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. It shall not take any of the flesh outside the house. You shall not break any of its bones. Oh, there's, oh my goodness. Do not break any of its bones. They didn't break Jesus' legs. Remember that? They didn't break his legs because he was perfect and resurrection was coming. We don't have time to get into that, but my goodness. John chapter 19, boom, right there. Psalms 34, boom, right there. They did not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. Verse 48, now if a stranger shall, shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all the males be circumcised, then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no circumcised person shall eat of it. You want to come into the door of the people of Israel. You want to worship Yahweh. This is a, this is a clue to the Gentiles being included. Be a part of the family. Be circumcised and you can sit at the table. Now, we don't practice that anymore. We're in the new covenant. Thank goodness. I became a Christian when I was well into my 20s. That would have been a bummer. But this is, a, this is a, an indication that even people that are outside the faith, if a foreigner travels with you and is circumcised, the cutting of the skin, he may be a part of the family. Colossians 2.11 says, In him you were circumcised with a, circus, a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. We come to Christ when we deny the flesh. We're circumcised in heart. Outsiders can be part of the family. You ever felt like an outsider? Then you, you're perfect for the family of God. If your foreigner is with you, they can be a part of the family. As a native, it says in verse 48, those of us who are not Jewish are welcome to the family of God still, Jews and Gentiles alike. If you read the book of Acts, that's a big deal. It was really hard for the early church followers, fathers to, to get on board with that. There shall be one law for the native and one, and one for the stranger who sojourns among you. And all the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, it, says, it says right there, um, 
that they obeyed. Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. You know, Josh talked about this this morning. He's, he's mentioned this the last few Um, the last few weeks that when it says that Noah was blameless before the Lord or that he was righteous before the Lord, what does that mean? That he was perfectly obedient? That he had never sinned in word, thought, or deed? No. I think that he had a couple of penchants that got got pent up. The first thing he did when he got off that boat was blackout drunk. He got blackout drunk and uh, embarrassed himself in front of his children. Saints are not perfect. The Israelites in chapter 12, it says there that they did everything that was commanded. But is that always the case? No, man. I mean, it's, it's weird when you look at, the, look at the people of Israel because they act like Pharaoh. Back when we were in Egypt, we had leeks and onions and garlic and meat. Never mind that we were in slavery. We were brutalized. We were beaten. And so why'd you bring us out here to die? They, they go back to Egypt in their hearts. They make a golden calf. They do all, they do all sorts of stuff. They, they fraternize with, with pagan people. The Lord said, stay away from them. They're going to dilute your fidelity to me. We're a sinful people. Martin Luther's great exclamation was simul justus epectator. It means that I am simultaneously a saint and a sinner. Our fidel, our, our, Jesus, Jesus saved us by what he did. First John says, if we say we have no sin, we're liars. The truth is not in us. We're deceiving ourselves. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive. There's this weird balance walking with the Lord. We're saved by what Jesus did. There's nothing else. There's nothing else that can be done. And that will affect the way that we live. This is the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters, all doctrine. What Jesus did, who he is, what he did for you, what that means for you. You're a son, you're a daughter, you're adopted, you're in the family forever. The last three chapters are, now here's what you gotta do about it. Here's how it should affect your life. Here's how it should affect your marriage, your raising of children, the way that you think, the way that you speak. Do you worry too much? Remember the first three chapters. We fall into sin, we fall into bad habits. His grace is new every morning, every morning. And Josh is right, for those of you who are there this morning, there is a... Uh, a flavor of theology, a flavor of doctrine out there. People say, no, man, once you're saved, Colossians 1, holy and blameless and above reproach. If you're not living holy and blameless and above reproach, then you're not a Christian. Oh, bro. That's so unbiblical, it's nauseating. I can't believe that pastors, quote unquote, say that kind of stuff. We, can, we blow it, and his grace is new every morning. So right now, the Israel, man, they're on a, they're on a, they're on a high point, but they're going to fall into the valley again. The righteous person falls seven times, but they get up seven times. His grace is that good. We're not saved by works, but our, a saving faith is a faith that keeps trying to work, keeps trying to forget those bad habits, forget those bad thoughts, please the Lord with our lives. And Israel is a great example in the Old Testament of a people who just, sometimes they, they nail it, sometimes they fail so bad, and every person that comes after them but his grace is sufficient, amen?